Well, hope you all are doing well uh, this morning and getting along. And looks and listen, you made it to another Sunday. That's a good thing, right? The Lord has kept you for another week. So, uh, let us turn our Bibles. I, you know, uh, it's been a while since we have talked about this particular sermon I brought to your attention uh, called Pulpit Growth and uh, dealing with the issue of the pulpit and how primary the pulpit is in governing the nations, governing the world. Um, Because it all starts, listen, if we have been called by God, he has given us a new heart, he's put his spirit within us, he's pushed us out into the world, and we are to be, as he says, a light to the world. Um, This is the task of the church. And if the task is failed here, behind the sacred table of the pulpit, it's going to be um, digested by the people who are in the pews or in the seats of the church. And therefore, they go out into the world with, for what they have been taught. I mean, the Bible is to equip, I mean, the, the pulpit is to equip the saints, right? This is why we're here. It's not a crusade. Um, it, it's not an evangelistic outreach. Um, it's a place where people who are converted gather to be edified and, in, and instructed from the Word of God. Now, if you got someone instructing people with a different gospel or a different message, what you're going to have going into the world is a different gospel and a different message, and the world is going to be worse than where we found it. And this is why it's so particularly important to do a sermon like this. I want you to understand why this is even being brought to the table. It's not because I think everyone's a bunch of idiots that just doesn't get the difference between good preaching, solid preaching, and, and bad preaching. But this is, in some point, it is a preventative measure. And I think pastors should be... Um, preaching messages like this showing the benefits of the pulpit. Number one, so you'd have a, you'd be able to have an understanding to know what to look for and even be able to instruct others that are going to different churches and maybe these churches are preaching a false gospel. You know, we want to be, we don't want to be hoodwinked either or bewitched just to go to a church because it's become like a shopping mall and it, it feeds our sinful nature. Therefore, it's more fun to go to those churches than to a boring small church that preached just dry, the dry Bible, right? No, no worries. No worries. No worries. Not to apologize. We love little children and little children that even interrupt services are totally fine. <laughs> Turn, so we're, we're going to hit 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And I'm going to go through... Uh, were most of you here on the first half of this particular sermon? Were most of you here? Okay, just Brett? Okay, well then. That, that, all right. Just Brett was here. Me and Brett. Hey, there were times that this church was so small, it was like preaching to just Brett. I remember those days. I would, pre- I would worship with my eyes closed. So I would have to look around and see if there's nobody here. He dies. He dies. Yeah. Verse 1 says this in 2 Timothy verse 4, starting in the, uh, the first verse. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry." Uh, remember when, when Timothy was when, when Paul was speaking this to Timothy, he wasn't talking to Timothy about doing the work of an evangelist just outdoors on the street doing street preaching on Saturday night. This had nothing to do with that. He what he was saying is to endure this within the context of the local church, because the local church is where a lot of your problems will occur. A lot of divisions will occur. People will sneak in. They'll try to disrupt us. And the worst thing in our day that we have in our day is a minimizing of the doctrine of the local church. You don't really hear many sermons about the doctrine of the, of the local church and how primary the local church is in our submission and obedience to Christ. Today, we just kind of, a majority of today is like we can just watch, we can do church at home, we can watch a couple of Billy Graham crusades, and we can just watch some Johnny Mac or whatever, or maybe a Paul Washer sermon, and call it a day. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when it comes to the local church. There's a lot of admissions Paul calls out with church discipline, baptisms, communion, isn't all done outside of the local church. Now, these things do happen. But the reality is all these things are in context. Even evangelism are all from the context of the local church. Without the local church, none of these things really make sense. Because these aren't maverick institutions. These are ordained by the Lord. Okay, And this is it. We want to raise the level of the purity of the church and how we talk about the church. Very important. And this is a hill that you'd want to die on. Many people think this is a secondary issue. It's not secondary. It's primary. In your walk with Christ, in becoming a member, submitting yourself to the local leadership of the elders within the church, doing all these things isn't something because the, church, the, the elders want to be little kings. The reality is the Bible tells us very clearly that this is part of the Christian faith. And we don't want to be neglectful or prideful in these areas and rebel against these areas. We, we want to submit to Christ in the way that he has ordained the local church. What we're dealing with uh, in this particular message is dealing with the opposite uh, things that occur within this context of, you see, this massive obsession with church growth. Church growth is what? Identified with your spirituality. The bigger the church, the bigger the person. Right, the bigger the pastor. And they all go to conferences, they try to learn how to grow their churches, and many of them resort to worldly means. As a matter of fact, that there was a study done, and the study showed that this the movement, the church growth movement that with the mega churches came from the shopping malls. They saw the shopping mall, they saw its attractive uh ability to pull people in, to satisfy the needs of the sinful heart. And they went ahead and they built their churches around the idea of the megachurch. And it worked. It filled people. It filled the houses. But it didn't work in the sense of biblically uh, transforming the soul and uh, building up in the faith. It became just having a bunch of spoiled brats in a playpen that you've got to somehow disciple. And it doesn't work. Try discipling a person who's unconverted. 
right? Who's had a false gospel and has just been immersed and filled with all the goodies that the church can manufacture to feed you so you stay, right? And then you come to a church like this, and it's like boring. We all we do is preach the word. We sing songs. We don't, you know, jump around and fall on the floor and, and do all these things that make church so exciting. The church becomes boring. Why is it boring? Because it's played against all of the gimmicks and all the theatrics that go on today in what many believe is the true church. I mean, you see some of these Hillsong videos. And you think to yourself, thousands upon thousands and thousands of people are in, 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 these, in these congregations. And it just makes you wonder. But the appeal is, is to this music, right? It hypnotizes people. And it feels good. So that's taken on as an anointing. That's confirmation that what you're around is correct. When it's not correct, you just feel buzzed and stimulated from the music. And now you go to some church like this and it's no fun, Right? which is a terrible indictment against the church. When you're born again, you are fully satisfied with biblical preaching. You won't take all the gimmicks and the theatrics and the smoke. Listen, there's no problem with, with having things that are enjoyable within your church. You know, I'm not a fundamentalist either. You know, there are fun things you can do here within the context, but the most enjoyable thing for a soul is to hear the true word of God preached from the scripture. That's the most unsatisfying thing you can get. The most satisfying thing you can get is when the worship stands up here and they sing songs that are Christ-centered. And with that, real quick, I'd just like to side note. I'd like to thank the worship team um, for their really hard work in really dialing it down to really bringing songs that first and foremost honor Christ and benefit the congregation. I've noticed it. I just put one song up there the other day just as an idea that I liked, and they played it today. And I really appreciate it. I'm very thankful for all the hard work that goes in to the worship here. It's really gotten better and better and better, and I'm very thankful for that. So thank you for doing that. So the battle, we see in the opposition between pulpit growth and church growth, and we see one is so excited about numerically growing while the others want to grow spiritually. And there's nothing wrong with us growing to 2,000 people, 10,000 people. There's nothing wrong with that, biblically speaking. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But as long as it's done by God's sovereign way, through his prescribed way, through the preaching of his word, the honoring of the elements, the honoring of the ordinances, and the honoring of the local church, how he has prescribed it in scripture to function. And if he wants to grow your church to 2,000, he wants to do a countryside with 116, he has every right to do that. But as long as it's not being done through pragmatism in gimmick-driven uh, tactics opposed to the biblical preaching of the gospel. It's better just to stay small and be biblical and be able to sleep well at night than try to hypnotize and bewitch everybody with, with good goodies and games. Amen. The problem, uh, the problem is, is that, you know, especially in our today, it really boils down to one thing and um, it's about the pulpit, guys. It really is. I know, I know I'm know. i not ele- an elevated person by any means above you. I'm not above you in the sense to where I'm a better person because I'm up here. Uh, no, it's not that way at all. It's just how God ordains things and the way he's put people in certain areas. So, But recognize that this is the issue that we're dealing with this morning. Um, is that the pulpit, you could trace every great move of God, whether that be revival, reformation, or restoration in society, can all be traced back to the pulpit. 
Same goes for a degenerate society. When gross darkness begins to cover the land, it can always be traced back to the pulpit. And we've spent millions in our accommodations to please the public, while at the same time producing man-pleasing and man-centered and man-baby preachers who are not only offended by God's not only offended by God's word, but have offended God Himself personally. Uh, church growth tactics and methods uh, that we have seen today at the abandonment of truth, just to try to get people in your church, so you can bump the salaries up of the pretending pastors up so they can live these grand doise, these this 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 opulent living, you know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. The goal is always success with those people. And success in numbers is how they can be identified. The one stop shopping method of the of the of the shopping malls and the mega churches uh, is just, you know, movie theaters, weight rooms, saunas, rolling rinks, racquetball courts. I mean it never ends. When does it end? People bellyaching about the racquetball court, you know, bellyaching about the bowling alley in the church. You know, it's like you just got weird stuff that happens all because of these things. And the the modern megachurches are prominent in these new features, you know. We have no new features here. People that come here, I tell them, don't expect next, you know, week, next Sunday, I'm going to come out here with with Van Halen music playing behind me and and music and, and, and smoke and Leaping around the church. It's never going to happen. So this is basically what you see is what you get every Sunday. And if that just doesn't please you, then there's a lot of those other places out there. I mean, they're on every corner, right? Not the mega churches, but those are pretty easy to find as well. Um, It's pride. You know, pride is really the fixation of all of this. When it comes to the whole mega church phenomenon and church growth is really built around pride. And personality-driven cults. It really is. It's pride. And, and this is where we need to deal with this reality. In Genesis 11.4 it said, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. And this is really what I see happening today, especially in Texas, where everything's big in Texas. Our mega churches are really big. As a matter of fact, one day I rode, we passed one going, I don't know what we were doing, we were driving around, I saw this thing, I didn't even know it was a church, it was so big, I thought, I didn't know what it was, it looked like a city, I go, what is that, and then one of my kids goes, dad, it's a church, I'm like, wow, I mean, I would have never expected, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a nice church, I like to have a bigger building myself, but it was so massive and big, I didn't even seem like a, like, what you would read about in the church and scripture it just seemed a little bit odd to me. Um, but anyway, the Puritans believed that the pulpit was the most dreadful place on the earth. The most dreadful place. What do you mean by dreadful? Because you are being used by God to bring his word. Heard one famous theologian say, when we come to the word of God, it's like coming to God himself. And standing up here and doing what I'm doing today is no light thing. I'm not a comedian. I've got no jokes. I'm not very good at the jokes anyways. But I would say I'm not up here to entertain anybody this morning. I should be up here trembling in my boots that the Lord would even allow me to even be up here in the first place. 
The pulpit is the place where the voice of God is heard. The word of God is audibly expressed and expounded by careful and responsible exegesis to God's chosen people. Very, 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 so that we really need to understand. Uh, among the evangelicals, let me just read these statistics over again because I may, you may not have heard these, but they're worth repeating. Uh, 31% of evangelicals in the U.S. say that science disproves the Bible. 33% say that gender is a choice. 38% say that Jesus is not God. 62% say that God accepts all religions. 62%, guys, this is more than half, say that the Holy Spirit is the force. 66, I'll keep my joke to myself this time about the Star Wars thing. 66% say that people are good by nature. 66% say that people are, are good by nature. And 75% say God first created Jesus. Can you imagine that? That's, 60, that's 75% of unconverted people. If you believe that God created Christ, I would say there's a good chance you're probably not born again. That's just my opinion. But... That's a, that's, a, that's a salvific issue. You cannot believe that God created Jesus and still say, I'm a believer in Christ and trust that Christ died for my sin. Very upsetting there. Paul forgot, no, Paul fought against all of these percentages here. We don't have to accommodate all these percentages or accommodate the people that make up these percentages. Paul didn't. Paul fought against it. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. If he would have agreed with any of these things, he could have never said that. And why did he say he fought? Why fighting? Because fighting is what we do as believers. The majority of your life until you get to heaven will be fighting, not relaxing, not smelling roses as you skip through the park, but on a battleship stationed right at the very gates of hell. We're on a battleship. Right now we're in battle. It's not time to relax and lay low. It's time to get in the fix and it's time to fight. We're going to be accountable. Uh, the Bible goes on to say in our verses, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. Paul knew that he was accountable Ultimately, at the end of the day, as fast as life goes, you will be in eternity and you will be accountable for the way that you lived. I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation because that's unbiblical. But what I am saying, you want to go ahead and neglect the word of God. You want to do things your own way. You're going to be accountable for that. There's going to come a time when you are going to stand before God and you will give an account for your life. All of us will. And I know a lot of it's rewards and loss of rewards. I know all of that. But I do not want to stand before Christ and be a disappointment in any way, shape, or form. There is accountability. That's what keeps us sharp. You're going to give an account for your life. The Bible says that. And I'm not talking about judgment either. I'm talking about the way that you have lived your life on this earth. And that's what brings us to our to our five sanctifying realities, which we already hit a few, but I'll go through these quickly. We'll bring us up to speed and then we'll finish this off. Second Timothy chapter four, one through five, we dealt with these five sanctifying realities. Number one, we need to be all in. Number two, we need to preach all of God's word. Number three, we need to be ready at all times. 
Number four, we need to be watchful in all things. Number five, and we need to endure all things. And this is the premise of what we're dealing today. We went through the first one. I don't know if you remember, but let me just reiterate quickly. Uh, we need to be all in. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a true fact, right? You're either all in or you're all out. There's no neutrality in the Christian faith. Neutrality, it means you're going backwards because you're doing nothing. So the reality is, is like you're either, you're either in or you're out. A lot of us, you know, even found myself at times, one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. Like we're living this dichotomy, this, and these two different worlds trying to make them work, right, in the same lifestyle. But you may be able to do this at some other church in America with a lot of stuff that they propagate today. You can get away with this and much worse. But from a biblical perspective, the biblical church, you're either all in or you're all out. That's a bottom line statement. And that's something you want to check yourself with this morning. We all need to check ourselves and ask ourselves, am I all in? Have I truly died? Have you died to Christ? Or have you rebelled against the death part of your life? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to live for yourself. You don't say it because you're fantastic with your theology. You're so good with theology, you become a hypnotist, right? You're so good at your theology that you're really missing the boat on serving Christ. You can know the Bible inside and out and split hell wide open. You can have an intellectual salvation that keeps you calm through the most of your life and then end up in hell because you never died to sell to serve the Lord. Paul said, I die daily. Do you die daily? Do I die daily? I have to die moment to moment, brothers and sisters. Because there's so much temptations in the world we live in everywhere you turn. It's like an adult store wherever you go. This day and age, wherever you turn. You've got the filth and grime and perversion and hatred of God wherever you go in these days. No matter where you are, it's there. It never used to be like this. Now I know in Rome, in Paul's day, it was much worse than this. People say, wow, it's never been this bad in history. Yes, it has. Some of the acts and stuff that people watch online were doing openly in Rome in Paul's day. Things were being done right in public. People were being slaughtered right in public, right? Many of you think it may get to that point? I don't know. But what I do say is this, we haven't gotten, it hasn't gotten that bad yet, but it's bad. It's bad. We need to be on guard against all of these things. Because you know what? It just takes a little bit of slack here and there and it starts to come in and you just take it on as normal. Because it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's affected us all. It has affected you in some way or another. The world has, right? It's affected me. It's hard to combat it in this day. It's difficult. It could be pride. It could be wanting attention. It could be wanting authority. It could be wanting award. It could be entitlement. It may not be perversion. But there's all of these elements that come from the world that speak to us. We don't have our guards up. We're not in our prayer closets. We're not seeking the Lord. We're not in His Word. You'll find you slowly start fading. And people see it. And people recognize it. And if they truly love you, they'll tell you. He's being charged before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew he was accountable before God. And he knew there would be a day and an hour that kept him sharp and sober. And that should keep us sharp and sober. 
Because everything we do, we do it with the eyes of our Lord upon us at every moment. Francis Schaeffer writes, here's the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth, for truth. There's only one word for this and why it's happening, and it's accommodation. It's accommodating. It's accommodating. Don't want to make anybody feel bad, feel bad or guilty about their sin. Just let everybody be who are they, who they want to be. It's okay. If a guy wants to be a girl or a girl wants to be a guy, just let him be. It's okay. You know, never confront anybody's lifestyle. Don't talk about homosexuality behind the pulpit. Don't talk about the murdering of babies with abortion behind the pulpit. May offend the people in the church. They want to leave. Leave. You know, who cares? Leave. Because the truth of God trumps all of those accommodations. Never accommodate that stuff. If you don't like it, repent or go. Because we're definitely not going to melt into that area of accommodation. And persecution is going to come for being honest, for being truthful. Not just up here, but in your lives. There should be some sense of aggravation coming from the world because of your lifestyle. At some level. It could be in your home. It could be with other family members. It could be at your workplace. It could be anywhere you're at. There should be some kind of aggravation that you are alive. And you are in there. And you are born again. Unless you're the guy or girl that gets to work and starts talking like everybody else. Then of course you're not going to get any problems. Because you're just exactly like the world. Number two, all of God's word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I made this actually into two points, two and three. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, uh, Paul had said, but we, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ. We don't preach any other doctrine, anything that would take away from Christ to benefit ourselves or to benefit others. We are to preach Christ because ultimately he's an all-sufficient God and he can satisfy any desire of the human soul. And only he can satisfy all the desires of the human soul. Verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. We are never to be seasonal Christians. You're not seasonal in the sense to where you get time off from being a believer. There is no season in this life where you get to take a time out and sit the bench. It's not in scripture. You are to be a full Christian, full time, everywhere that you are. You're not to conform to the world because your page, it'll affect your paycheck. You're not to do anything that would contradict the word of God to benefit yourself at the sake of neglecting the word. We are to be Christians for every season as Christ was said to be a man of all seasons. Could you imagine if he said, oh, I'm just going to take the fall off and just kick back, play some golf, enjoy the weather, go boating, bowling with the boys, whatever, but neglect his, his primary ministry be awful. Same with us. There should be no neglect in our service to the Lord in whatever element or aspect that is in your life. Something we all need to be reminded. In season means what? Always ready. You're always ready. It was said of George Whitfield, 
that uh, he could be called upon at any time of the day, anywhere, anytime, because he was always ready. He was always in the Word. See, when you're in the Word, when you're in the Word and you're in prayer, and you're studying and your life is identified and characterized by being in the Word of God, by being with God, by knowing God, you'll never be in a place where you're not ready. You'll always be ready. You may not have the perfect outline, but who cares about your perfect outline? The reality is is that you know Christ, you know His Word, and you are ready at every season of life. The Bible says to be ready to give a word to those who need hope. They were always to be ready. We're not to be caught off guard. Second Timothy says in 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that a man of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. Not just a few things here and there, but everything. And because God's word fully equips us, to do this task, that we are fully equipped with what God has given us. And our equipment at the end of the day is really the full armor of God, which who is what? Christ. Christ is our full armor. He's not like one little piece. He's the complete covering. You know, we are to be clothed in Christ. Clothed, the Bible says, in power. Clothed in the light of Christ. This is our armor. This is our clothing. This is what gives us the ability to go into a dark, nasty, perverted world and succeed without getting blown up ourselves. It's very important that we understand this reality. Um, we are to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. I mean, it takes a long time. We have to be long suffering to others because God's long suffering to us. In Acts 20 27, um, it was said here, um, it says, For I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. Luke here writes, he says, you know, there's no shrinking back. There is no shrinking back. The whole counsel of God is being preached. We can't shrink back. We can't be those who get doubled over. We don't want to be, as Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Strength being small is not our own strength, but it's our reality and our trust in the strength of the Lord. And we have to understand that. I like what uh, Dr. Um, C. Matthew uh, McMahon had written. He dealt with this whole reality that if we would not just look at everything as letters, right, in words, but we'd look at it as worship. If we would understand the element of preaching as worship, and I don't just say just from the pulpit, which is the primary sense what we're talking about. But I'm saying in every individual life who is a Christian, you have to understand the highest elevated sense of worship is proclaiming God's dear son to the world. You can't get any higher than that. There's nothing greater than you can do for another person than to exalt Christ. The highest level of worship that God seems the most satisfying of all is the preaching of his son to the world. It's truth. It's an action. It's an act of worship when we preach the Word of God. We're acting, saying, God, I love you so much. And you declare a son to a lost person. The lost person punches you out, drags you across the parking lot, and leaves you for dead. But you just worshipped 
the living God as he sought fit. What is it? First Corinthians one twenty one says it pleased God, brings pleasure to God by the preaching of his word. Even though it's foolishness to the world, it's pleasure to God. It pleases God. It brings pleasure to him when you're being honest in your proclamation and you're speaking up for Christ in whatever situation that you find yourself in. He wrote an article on the Puritan mind. If you ever get connected, it's a great ministry. He wrote an article called Preaching is Worship. And he says this, in the act of preaching, this glorifying of Christ is the essence of the preacher's worship. The preacher ought to be exceedingly gripped with a sense that he is delivering Christ to the people through his preaching. If he is enthralled, listen, if he's enthralled with a sense of this reality, then he immediately is conscious of the nearness of God. Preaching is a spiritual infection which ought to impregnate impregnate the hearer with the life of God in Christ. If the preacher is intimately aware that he is doing this to the unction and temperance of the spirit of truth, he is immediately aware that God is delighted in the work being dealt with. Jeremy Burroughs, the Puritan says, for those who are most familiar with God are the most potent with God. Ian Murray, in his book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, writes on the condition of the church just prior to Spurgeon's arrival. He says, The church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits, but there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts and this what would be termed as unction unction we don't hear that word unless you're in the pentecostal circles right but unction is not foreign to scripture it's really not and we shouldn't let another sect steal something that's biblical and we're embarrassed to talk about it in church Ephesians uh, 6 19 through 20 Paul says this and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that there and I may what speak boldly says boldly again as I ought to speak he was asking people to pray that he would have unction and power and boldness to preach the word of God. The Greek word for utterance in these instances is called apophothengami. And what that word means is, uh, I've read a, a commentary by Dr. William Downing, fantastic. He says this, it is the very best word for what we consider to be real preaching. Heralding the word of God, listen, through a raised elevated, authoritative voice in a prophetic utterance. This is from a Reformed believer, solidly Reformed. Pastor L. Martin, he writes this. First, if and when the Holy Spirit is resting upon us as we preach, he will often give us what I have chosen to call a heightened sense of the spiritual realities in which we are trafficking as we preach. Spurgeon writes on this as well. He says the divine spirit will sometimes, listen now, 
work upon us so as to bear us completely out of ourselves. Have you ever had that moment when you're talking to that person and in the middle of the conversation something happens and you say things that you never think in a million years you'd ever say or never even remember to say or ever even knew what to say and it just comes out of your mouth you're like, boy, I wish I would record that or I could do that again, but you never can. That's the power of God working upon your life. That's when things come upon you suddenly and you don't recognize it and out of nowhere you'll be able to speak in a way you've never been able to speak before. I can tell you this just from experience. There is a difference. And I can tell as well when I'm behind the pulpit or I'm in the open air preaching or I'm speaking to another another individual when this actually happens. I do feel outside of myself. Something had taken place and occurred that I didn't conjure up or manufacture from my spirit. But it was from the Holy Spirit himself. George Whitfield remarked by saying, After I finished preaching in the open air, I was so overpowered by God's love that it almost took my life away. Can you imagine that? Being so overpowered, not with the condemnation of God, but the love of God to the point you almost expire. Wonderful. As you read through the Bible, there are at least five things that can be true when the Spirit arrives with unusual force in the preaching. Unction doesn't mean all five happen at once. More often than not, it may be more like a momentary combination of a couple of these points. One, unction inflames the preacher. The Lord commissions Jeremiah and says, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. No doubt, this inflaming passion came to mark Jeremiah's ministry, and he has said, If I say I will not mention this or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm very weary with holding it in. I basically just can't do it. Unction gives the preacher a sense of unworthiness, not worthiness, not pride. You're not special. You should be humbled. Unction gives the preacher a sense of unworthiness. God's spirit is the spirit of holiness. When the spirit falls, there's inevitably a sense of one's unworthiness. The preacher's disposition is that of Isaiah who cried out, Woe is me. To preach about Christ's salvation and man's sin without any pathos or feeling, without any sense of an affected heart, is to preach the good news without the Spirit. Unction stamps the preacher with the seal of God's authority. John Owen, in a sermon titled, The Duty of a Pastor, said authority is required of God's preacher. He asked, what is authority in, pre- in a preaching ministry? It is the consequent of unction and not of office. The scribes had an outward call to teach in the church, but they had no unction. No anointing that could evidence that they had the Holy Ghost in his gifts and graces. Christ had no outward call, but he had an unction. Remember, the times when Jesus' preaching left the crows and religious leaders marveling. The crowds and religious leaders marveling. For he spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Unction provides an unprepared for clarity. Sermon preparation is often little more than working for clarity and exposition and application, right? 
But there are times in preaching when unexpected clarity comes. You say something better than you would have thought you would. And an unanticipated logic flies from your lips, that the Spirit's work. Jesus told his disciples that times would come when persecution would require extemporaneous preaching. He comforted them by saying, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Unction brings boldness related to the matters of eternity. Courage in preaching Christ might be the most common facet of unction. Trace out the theme of boldness in Acts 4 and see what, the, what this has meant for the apostles' ministry. In Acts 4.13, the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In 4.29, the believers pray in the face of opposition. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with what? All boldness. The prayer is answered through the Spirit as in Acts 4.31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. Sinclair Ferguson says the hallmark of the preaching which the Spirit affects is boldness. As in the Old Testament, when the Spirit fills the servants of God, He clothes Himself with that person, and aspects of the Spirit's authority are illustrated in the courageous declaration of the Word of God. This boldness appears to involve exactly what it denotes. There is freedom of speech. We catch an occasional glimpses of this in the Acts of the Apostles. What was said of the early New England preacher Thomas Hooker becomes a visible reality. When he preached, those who heard him felt that he could pick up a king and put him into his pocket this is the power of god's word and the power of the holy spirit when he comes upon you and he grants you an extraordinary ability to preach his word in power third is all be ready at all times and in all seasons this was a charge that we are to be ready what does this mean to be ready it means to be prepared we got to understand one thing, and this is a great sin of many, is that they rely on the Spirit without preparation. A Spirit told me this. Spirit told me this. You know, heaven forbid, don't get up behind the pulpit not prepared. You know, we don't want a prophetic pastor up here. We want someone that's been trained, loves the Word of God, in the Word of God, knows the Word of God. We don't want someone up here just, you know, messing around, reading people's home address. Right, We don't need a, a psychic up here. We don't need fortune tellers up here. But we need people who are prepared in the Word of God. Preparation. What does preparation mean? It means being ready. When you're not ready, it means you're not prepared. That's the whole point that we pointed to before. Be ready. Be prepared. Be a person that does diligence in their studying of the Word of God. So when things do come up, you are not left as one who is totally unprepared. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, God is my witness. I scarcely ever prepare for my pulpit with pleasure. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> Study for the pulpit is to me the most irksome work in the world. Why is it irksome? Because it's hard. It's hard being in the Word of God. It's hard, right? It takes time to rightfully divide the Word of God. It takes effort. It takes 
continuation and perseverance in the Word of God. And in our day, in our age, everything is about pleasure. Everything is about convenience. We don't want to do hard things. We don't want to work hard. Any type of work, we call it legalism. You know, it's not legalism to be diligent in studying the Word of God and preparing yourself when the time comes. Be ready when the naysayers appear, which they will. Naysayers appear everywhere, and naysayers appear in this church as well. We've had quite a few of them over the last six years that I've been here. There are naysayers, and we do have to be ready. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, because they have itching ears that will heap up for themselves teachers. You just won't do anymore. They'll get tired of the pastor. They'll get tired of the sermons. And next thing you know, they'll attack the pastor. They'll want to start trouble in the church, start menacing with the members. Things will happen. They'll be gone, and they'll try to drag half the church with them. I've seen it happen more times than I can count. It's happened even in our little small church. I've seen it. It happens, and you need to be ready. They will turn their ears away, not towards the truth, but instead they'll get caught up in stories and in fables. Bruce Bickle writes, the spirit of this age, not Mike Bickle, by the way, Bruce Bickle writes, the spirit of this age would have us believe that the avenue of preaching is no longer the means by which God will revive his church. Rather, we are to engage in and enlist more contemporary means to accomplish what God has said he would do through the foolishness of preaching. Fourth point, we must be watchful in all things. Watchful in all things. And I know our time is limited, and I'll make it short. But we need to be watchful in all things. Verse 5 says, but you be watchful in all things. In other words, know thy enemy. Know the outworkings. Know how the enemy works. We don't sit there and study Satan. But what I'm saying is that understand what spiritual warfare is and you won't fall a victim to every little argument or offense that comes your way because you'll be a dissect the world. You want to argue, get revenge, backbite, gossip, start a fight there. Listen, majority of what happens to you is spiritual. It's even said in the word, the little things are happening to you. Recognize, which I, I'm probably the, you know, I screw up more than probably anybody in here when it comes to stuff like that. Like, I want to get right into it and deal with it in the flesh. And I have to be reminded by my lovely wife that, hey, this is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. So remember that. Be in the Word and recognize that nothing in this world will conjure up more demonic forces like preaching truth. It's true. You want problems? Be truthful. Be honest. Preach the true Word. Preach the true Christ. And you will definitely have some good problems. Ephesians 6, 10-11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the might, and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand against the devil's scheme. Even William Grinnell said, you know, we are in the bloodiest of battles. He wrote a complete treatise on Ephesians 6, the armor of God. If you have not read it, I would definitely encourage you, please read that book. There's a three-volume set from Banner of Truth. It's an abridged version, unabridged version, abridged version. Yeah, and it is, it's very well written. 
um, get a hold of those, read those. I think they would be uh, a blessing to you and keep you probably out of a lot of troubles uh, that we could fall into. It's one of the best uh, books I've ever read on spiritual warfare from a Puritan. Number five, um, we must endure all afflictions and do the work of an evangelist to fulfill our ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. And I don't think Paul had in mind Saturday night outreaches, crusades, or tent meetings. He was actually talking about the evangelistic characteristics, that of even church planning. You know, we never hear that, do we? We always hear about anything evangelistic is always about you talking to another person about Christ, which is true evangelism. But also, true evangelism comes from where? The true church. A, a, a local church. How do we get local church churches? We plant them. Paul planted. Spurgeon himself planted 54 churches. We plant churches. It's part of the biblical model of evangelism. you got to understand something. Some of the greatest evangelistic work you'll ever do is planting a church. Why? Because it's an incubator of producing more. Getting the word out, getting more evangelists out there that are biblical, preaching the true word of God because of why? Biblical pulpits produce biblical evangelists. It just happens. It doesn't produce it outside of this reality. It's within the context of the local church. This is true. It's upsetting to hear because it really comes against a lot of our ideas about evangelism. You know, we compartment, there is a compart- compartmentalization of missions. You're sending someone to China, right? Um, I get we're all missionaries, but let's not say that to such an extent we're no longer sending and supporting missionaries. That'd be a total cop-out, right? Because you're being cheap. The reality is, give to missions. Send them overseas. Give to missionaries. Give to evangelists. There is a compartmentalization, um, as Joseph's book brings out this element really well. There's a part of going out and doing something you're uncomfortable with and talking to strangers because you generally don't do it during the week. And what that is, it's a catalyst, just a catalyst to thrust you into the week with a different mindset. Nothing will encourage you more than getting outdoors and being around strangers, sharing the gospel with a majority of people that just don't want to hear it. It'll do wonders on your sanctification. It'll do wonders on your heart, do wonders on your growth, even in marriage. All these things, if they're suppressed, you're not doing them, they're going to have an effect on your personal walk. Why? Because we're not called to go and preach. We're commanded to. It's a command of God. Jesus said go. It wasn't good advice. It wasn't a counseling session. He wasn't asking for your opinion. He wasn't asking you to redefine what that meant. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We say, well, what about women? Go into all the world and share your faith to all the people that you come in contact with, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not. Get out. Set apart a day. Once a month, once a week, get out on the streets. Get out there around the people. If anything, just watch. You don't have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. Get around the family of God who is out in the world doing these things. Not saying you're not out in the world evangelizing. It's beautiful. But what I'm saying is there's an element of this that's really strengthening. But our whole life should be characterized with this in mind to anyone we come in contact with. Our families, our spouses, our children are all equally as important and powerful. But we just need to be reminded of these things that, you know, evangelism isn't just being out on Saturday night. Evangelism is talking to your neighbors. Evangelism is bringing people over for dinner, opening your home. There are different elements of evangelism. It's the same gospel. You're still talking to people. It's the same element happening. It's just, there's no 
higher value. But for your personal sake and your personal walk, I would encourage you to get out on the streets once in a while. If anything, just to encourage those that have been doing it every week. Encourage them. They're part of your family. Be praying for them if you don't go out. Be involved in some way. Uh, it's very a desperate thing. I go out. I'm not telling you something that I don't do. I can't stand up here and preach a message on evangelism and never evangelize. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, you guys need to get out in the streets. You need to get out and pray for you. You never get out in the streets and preach. You don't do it. So you've got to lead. You've got to lead from the front. Preachers and pastors, people that are elders, need to lead from the front, not the back. Don't be in the grandstands, clapping, everybody going out. Be out and involved. Lead the church. Right? Be biblical and be that man of God and do those things that are hard. I don't like being out there. It makes me nervous. I don't like being out there. It makes me nervous. Well, I can't be out there. I got a big family. I got a big family. I'm out there. Well, I'm working two jobs. I work two jobs and a half. I'm out there. What excuse do you have that I don't? What excuse do you have? I'm just saying, I'm not trying to be a jerk or a bully. I'm just saying, you don't have to go out. No one's going to frown upon you. I'm doing it for your benefit. You know, it benefits me and my walk with the Lord, drives me deeper into the word, drives me deeper into prayer, and I have the satisfaction of going out there and doing it, not to boast myself up, but I feel good because I was able to glorify God in the public, in the marketplace. It's a beautiful thing. And the Bible does say that these things do strengthen the church, that even the office of an evangelist does what? He strengthens the church. He builds them up. Why? Because he's doing something that makes you very uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. But it does give us some warning signs to get out and get involved to the best as you, as you can. His pulpit was the weapon of choice, you know, and, 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 and he knew how powerful that speaking to Timothy this way, that this would be the weapon of God's choice. I know I'm going a little bit long, but it's necessary. I'm just about done. But he knew the weapon of choice for Timothy was the pulpit. Not his outdoor extraordinaire, right? Wasn't any of those things. It was about his pulpit ministry. He told him, you can read through, the, read through those epistles and you'll see majority of those epistles, Paul is building him up to be a pastor of a church plant with success. We will not be useful unless we are sanctified and prepared, whether we're ready in season and out of season for the work of the ministry. We need to be all in. We need to preach all of God's word. We need to be ready at all times. We need to be watchful in all things. And we need to endure all afflictions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning, Lord. And I pray that your word was taken in the right spirit, in the right way. Lord, nothing that I set up here was cantankerous or uh, bullying, Lord, but just an expression, Lord, of, of what the word of God tells us. How do we fulfill our ministries uh, to do the work of an evangelist, Lord. Help us all to be reminded of that today, reminded of all these things, Lord, uh, that we would be awakened uh, to this reality, Lord, that we need to be all in, and we need to preach all of God's word, and we need to always be ready at all times, and we need to be watchful in all things, and we do most definitely need to learn how to endure all afflictions. In Jesus' name, amen.